Good evening. I'm glad you're back with us tonight. I'm glad you've braved the storm and come out to uh, learn a little bit about why we are where we are today and the history behind the Christian church. As I've mentioned several times, we're not deists. We don't believe God's an absentee landlord. We believe He's involved in the world that we live in today. He's always been, and there's no indication that He has ceased being involved in the world. And what we're studying through the history of Christianity is we are studying what happens when God's children do obey Him and what happens when they don't. And there are some tremendous lessons to this. The first night we talked about persecuted Christianity from 70 A.D. to 312. And this was a period of time that was characterized by these four things we discussed. The intense persecution against Christianity and how under that persecution Christianity spread like wildfire. The canonization of the Christian scriptures, the recognition of the scriptures that were accepted by all Christians, and the rise of the bishop as having power and authority in the churches over the elders and the other people in congregations. The next section of time we talked about was the time of imperial Christianity. And that was a period of time when the Roman emperor was head of the church. It was corrupt. It was a strange time. It was a time characterized by a change in the government of the churches. Church government began to emulate the government of the Roman Empire with layers and layers of bureaucracy and authority going higher and higher. It culminated in the rise of the Pope, and it was during this time the councils began to decide church doctrine originally on very important matters. But it's always a problem when we put the prerogative of God into the hands of a man. And that's what happened during this period of time. Tonight, we are going to talk about the age of Christendom. Christendom, what is commonly known around the world as the time of the Dark Ages. Okay, and it was... And an exceedingly difficult and dark time. This is a time in the church history where there were tares among the wheat. You know, Jesus told a story about planting wheat and an enemy coming in and planting tares in among the wheat. And this is a time when the tares were strong among the wheat. They grew thrivingly throughout the world and they corrupted the church, the holy church of God. They corrupted many of the people who were in it. It was a very dark and difficult time. Now, a kingdom is an area where a king has dominion, kingdom. That's where we get the word from, where a king has dominion, okay? Christendom is a time when Christ had dominion. It was the dominion of Christ, and it was a time when Christ's church was not just a spiritual kingdom, but when it tried to be a physical kingdom in and of itself. Now, I'm not talking about the Roman Empire running the church, but I'm talking about the church itself seeking to be its own independent kingdom. Now, this happens, if you'll recall what we talked about last time, that there were now two capitals in the Roman Empire. There was an eastern capital and a western capital. 
And those capitals, the Western Empire where Rome was, began to get weak. The kingdom is going to divide in 1054, okay? Completely divide to two different empires. But the Western Empire was growing weaker and weaker. And all of the military might and the political authority and power was all in the east. It was down around Constantinople. It wasn't in the west around Rome. And so what happened as the Roman Empire pulled their military might away from this Western Empire, the West began to be raided by a bunch of barbarians. And this is a map that shows different invasions that occurred around this period of time. You had the Angles and the Saxons and the Franks and the Goths and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Huns and the Vandals. And these were all different barbarian tribes that came in and they would come and conquer an area, but they weren't growing a kingdom. That wasn't their plan. They didn't want to grow a bigger and bigger and bigger kingdom. All they wanted to do was come in and steal everything you had that was of any value, rape and pillage, and then leave. And as you can imagine, because there were no Roman troops to stop this, and all the peoples in these areas had been subjugated to the Romans, it was pretty easy pickings. It was pretty easy for these people to come in and win these battles and destroy the people in these areas and destroy all that was the semblance of civilization. And so what happened as a result of this is you had a whole bunch of people who became like warlords, a bunch of guys who became warlords. And this is the area that we're talking about right here if you look at this map. It's going to be this area that we call the Holy Roman Empire. And it's during this time that there are huge changes going on in the world, okay? And the important guy in this period of time that we're going to talk about for a minute is this guy right here. His name was Charles Martel, and he was mayor of the palace of the Frankish kingdom. Okay, now mayor of the palace was not the king, but he was like in Britain. He was the prime minister of the country, so he was the one with the real power, and the king was just figurehead. And Charles Martel had a nickname. Look in the picture. What do you think his nickname was? They called him Charles the Hammer Martel. And this was before WWE. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't wrestling people. He was a serious military genius. He was brilliant. And during this period of time, when he is the mayor of the palace in the kingdom of the Franks, there's a guy all the way across the Mediterranean Sea an Arabian camel trader that believes he sees a vision from God. And this Arabian camel trader was a guy by the name of Muhammad. You ever heard of Muhammad? You've all heard of Muhammad, haven't you? And he believed he was in a cave and the angel Gabriel came and appeared to him and gave him a vision. And he discovered some amazing things through this vision. Number one, it was the Arab and not the Jew that was the special people of God. So he told all the Arabs, you're the special people of God, not the Jews. He said it was Ishmael who was the child of promise and not Isaac. 
He said it was the Koran, which was going to be his writings and his words, that were the final message from God, not the Bible. He said the God of Abraham was Allah, not Jehovah. And he said the final prophet was Muhammad, not Jesus. Jesus was a great prophet, but he was just a prophet to the Jews. Muhammad was the prophet to the entire world. And he said that his followers should subjugate and kill their enemies instead of love their enemies. Very different message in Christianity, isn't it? Totally different message. These, by the way, just a little aside here, these can't both be true. Christianity and Islam cannot both be true. Now, they can both be false, but they can't both be true. And we need to remember and understand that. So this guy, the way he spread his, his religion was through the military. He would go in and conquer a place, and when he did... He would make all the peoples that he conquered fight in his army and they'd go conquer somewhere else. And he'd make them join his army and go fight and conquer somewhere else. And he began to spread his kingdom and it spread all across northern Africa all the way over to the Strait of Gibraltar, jumped up into Spain and was headed north. And when this happens, you need to remember that the Roman Empire has crumbled. There is no one to stop this Arab Islamic invasion, and they are set to sweep all across Europe. So Charles the Hammer Martel decides he's going to do something like th- something about that, and he goes and takes us an army, and he goes down to Tours, which is close to the border of Spain and France. And one of the things that made the uh, Arab invasion, the Islamic invasion, so effective is they had horses and they fought from horses. Now, the Roman Empire, they were primarily an infantry. The soldiers were on foot. And you can imagine if you had, had horses and are fighting a bunch of people on foot, you've got a huge advantage in that battle. So being a brilliant strategist in the military way, Charles Martel goes and he finds this area, Tours, where there's this huge hill that the attacking army has to fight through. And this hill is heavily wooded. It's a very dense forest on this hill. And he stations all his troops at the top of this hill. Now, see, the brilliance in that is it eliminated the advantage that the Arabs had because they can't fight uphill through a heavy forest on their, on their horses. And so you know what he did? He defeated the Islamic invasion right here. Boom. It was over. Said and done. I want you to know that if it had not been for that man, you and I would very likely speak Arabic instead of English today. He stopped the Islamic takeover of Europe. Isn't that an amazing thing? Did you know that about history? He did it from the belief in Christianity. He claimed to be a Christian, and he believed that the infidel Islamic armies should not take the area that had been dedicated to Jesus Christ, and he came to stop it. Now, after he died, his son was a guy by the name of Pepin the Short. 
Now, I don't know if this guy was short or not. I think it um, probably a good thing we don't name each other by physical characteristics today, huh? But uh, he was Pep in the short. Pep in the short uh, was a very effective general, just like his dad. In fact, he lived his life. He died undefeated militarily. He never lost a battle. He was undefeated. And one of the things he did is he took a part of land, of the land of Italy, that belonged to a people called the Lombards. And he took it and he gave a portion of that to the Pope as a gift. Did you know today you can go visit that land? It's called Vatican City. And it is owned and run it is an independent country ruled by the pope to this very day given to him by this guy Pepin the short but Pepin the short like his name uh, is not a real big part of history he's not the main part of history the guy that really we want to talk about mainly now is his son his son was Charles the Great. You probably knew him by the name Charlemagne. Have you ever heard of Charlemagne? If you took world history, he was a 25-point question. He was an important guy in the history of the world. Charlemagne was a great, great conqueror militarily. He was a tremendous military leader. He conquered the Bavarians, the Slavs, and the Moslems in that part of the world. And he is so effective that the guy who's Pope at the time, a guy by the name of Leo III, looks at him and he goes, you know what? This guy's the solution to a problem I have. Now you remember that the, the Roman Empire is splitting, right? To the Eastern and Western. And the Western is weak. Or excuse me, yeah, the Western is weak and the Eastern is militarily strong. The Pope in Rome, the Roman bishop, had been elevated above all the other bishops by this time. Remember in 590, Gregory solidified the Roman bishop as the pope, the papa of the church, okay? And so he's above everyone else. So the bishop in Constantinople, which is the Eastern Empire, is authoritarily underneath the Roman bishop. So the Roman bishop, anything he says goes in the church, but he has no muscle. He has no way to enforce that. Now, have you ever seen a home where, you know, the Bible says that the man is the head of the house, right? That the husband, the father, is the head of the home, and he should set the direction. Have you ever seen a home that the man would make rules, but he just couldn't enforce them in his home? Have you seen that? Doesn't work too well, does it? Not a good system, okay? That's kind of what was going on in the church here at this time. The Pope could come up with whatever rules he wanted, but he had no way to enforce it. So it was nothing more than just suggestions because he had no power. But he said, you know, with this guy, this guy can be my muscle. And so on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., Pope Leo III crowned this man, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, and he designated him Charles Most Pious, crowned Augustus by God. Does the name Augustus mean anything to you? Have you heard the name Augustus? You remember who the first Caesar, first Roman Caesar was? 
Augustus. And this guy is going to be the muscle behind the Roman, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic or the Holy Roman Empire that's shaped after the physical Roman Empire. And they are going to, with his power and his muscle, they're going to enforce the rules of the Pope throughout the world. Um, they had tremendous effectiveness in doing this in the area. As I said, he was, he was uh, named Charles Most Pious, crowned Augustus by God. You see, the Pope had the ideas and Charlemagne had the muscle. And this type of partnership ruled the known world for a while. They had tremendous power in that. But, you know, the problem is when you have two big powers before long, you know what's going to happen? They're going to turn on one another and they're going to fight. And for the next 500 years in Europe, Europe is going to be a battlefield between these two powers. Now, Charlemagne, his original job for the Pope was to be the muscle behind the moral law of the Pope. Do you remember a few years ago, it's probably been 30 years ago here in America, there was a group called the Moral Majority. Any of y'all remember the Moral Majority? Okay. And they were a political action group. Okay, And their idea was to try to get the moral Christians to all rise up together and vote for Christian candidates and vote for Christian laws and try to enforce politically Christian morality in America. You remember that? How well did that work? That work real good? Didn't work real good. That's what Charles Martel tried, or that's what uh, Charlemagne here tried to do. He made, the Pope made gambling and dancing illegal. It was against the law. And this guy here, he sent out what he called his Missi Dominici, which were envoys of the Lord. And basically, what they were was a religious sheriff's department. And they went around trying to catch people who were breaking the laws of the Pope. Okay? And they would catch somebody breaking the laws of the Pope, and they would enforce those laws, okay? Now, this guy did a lot of things militarily, but he also did a lot of things culturally. He really affected the world that you and I live in. You know, at this period of time, most people were illiterate. Only the priest could read and write. And one of the things this guy did is he began to have people... In churches, have churches begin to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic to boys. Girls weren't allowed at this time, but the boys could learn some reading, writing, and arithmetic. They called it a place of leisure, and leisure was, we call leisure when you're laying around doing nothing, right? But to them, leisure meant a place where lectures were given. And the Latin word for leisure is schule. You know what that is? At school, schools, and this was the beginning of that. There were a, a lot of many, many uh, political and cultural things. Now, this period of time is a period of time we call the Middle Ages. And when I think of the Middle Ages, and I assume you too, this is what I think of, right? 
You think of a castle and lords and ladies and knights and serfs and vassals and, and King Arthur and all of those legendary kind of things. And they've got these castles and they've got the moats around the castles and all of that. It was a time which was not a good time to be alive. I know it has been romanticized in literature and in movies, but I want to tell you it was not a good time to be alive. These castles, they had men who lived in them. It was called a feudal system, and the word feud, F-E-U-D, means fee. It means money. And these were men who were lords who lived in these, and they controlled a large area of land around them, okay? They were lords over this land. That's where we get the word landlords today, someone who owns property that other people rent to live on. And everyone who lived in the area around one of these castles on the turf of this guy had to pay him to live there. And he controlled everything that happened in that area. They were these small warlords, so to speak. And he would have a mercenary army that went to fight. A lot of times the people who lived on his land had to go fight for him a certain number of months out of the year. And there were a lot of battles and a lot of ugliness that happened. One of the things, though, that this did is it affected the churches in these areas. It wasn't just your personal life, but it was the church. How would a church function in a time like If you had some warlord that was master over the area, how would the church function? One of the things that began during this time that was a real problem was what's called lay investiture. Now, lay means a common man or someone who was not in the clergy, And it's where the authority to preach came from laymen, usually the landlord. And what would happen is this. Here in the Pampa area, there would be some landlord who owned all of this territory, and we would all work for him, and we would all pay rent to live on his property, and the men would all go fight in his army, and the church would be on his land, and he would appoint the bishop over the church because the bishop needs to not do things the landlord's not going to like right he needs to do things the landlord is going to like so he's going to appoint guys as bishop who are basically puppets of his and you know anytime there's a situation like this of course the church collected money from people the church taxed people back then and So these bishops would lay taxes on all the people who lived around who had to be a part of this church. And you know, that became kind of a lucrative deal where people could make money. People could get a lot of money from being a bishop over a church. And so it almost became like a franchise, like you could get a Taco Bell franchise, you know. You could be the bishop of a church in this area by paying the landlord to let you be the bishop. And you skim a part of that money off the top and you give it to the landlord. And you know what? If you were very successful, you could go to the next landlord over and pay him So you could be bishop of that church too. And then you could go pay someone else and be bishop of their church. Now what do you think about that? 
You think that would be good? There's not a person in here who thinks that would be good, right? If the mayor of this town could come here and say to your elders, you know what, guys? We're going to have my brother-in-law come in here, and he's going to be the bishop of this church, and you're going to report to him. That kind of stuff happened all the time. Can you imagine living in a time where the church is subservient to the state? Do you think Christian people liked that? They didn't like it any more than you and I would like it. It was a corrupt system. In fact, it was such an offense that eventually about 300 monasteries in France decided that they'd had enough. And they were not going to allow this to go on any longer. And they refused to recognize the bishops that were appointed by the landlords in the area. They said, we're not doing that. They said, in fact, you know, the truth is the state gets its power from God instead of the church getting its power from the state. And so they have this huge division here of how we're going to look at uh, this. It was interesting, uh, a note that I found. They called this simony when someone would buy a bishopric. You know why they called it simony? Do you remember Simon in the New Testament who tried to pay for authority in the church? That's why they called it simony. Okay? So what you've got is you've got this division here between the state and the church. And it is played out under the rule of these two guys, the pope and the king. Okay, now that's, that's a more recent pope. That's not the guy who was pope at the time. What do you think about that? Do you think the authority should be found in the church? Or do you think the authority should be found in the state? Do you think the mayor ought to be able to say who gets the right to preach here? Anyone think that? You can shake your heads if you don't agree with that. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea at all. Well, what about the other way around? Do you think the church should have authority over political things? Do you think the elders here should be able to go to the mayor and say, okay, this is the guy who's going to be city manager? Think they ought to be able to do that? No, that's not a good idea either. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You know, our kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And we don't need to mix up and involve the church in the matters of state. And the state doesn't need to be involved in matters of the church. Now, these two guys right here who were the pope and the king at the time are where this plays out, and it plays out in a very ugly way. This is a guy named Hildebrand. He called himself Pope Gregory VII. And Pope Gregory VII is the one who took on himself what was called papal infallibility. And what that means is, when he spoke ex cathedra, ex cathedra means from the chair, when he spoke as the pope sitting in his throne, God kept him from making any errors. He was infallible. What he said could not be wrong. He spoke for God. Now, where did that come from? You know where that came from? 
Do you remember way back there, way back when they had to decide whether or not to let people who had denied Christ back into the church? And they said, we know, let's let the bishop decide whether people are forgiven or not. Let's let the bishop have that power. Is that a good thing? No, that's a terrible, terrible thing. And he looks at this situation and he doesn't like it any more than these French monks in the monasteries in France. And he says, you know what? We're not going to do simony anymore. We're not going to allow that anymore. And when he did, King Henry IV rose up and said, Oh yeah, you're unfit to be Pope. You don't know what you're talking about. You can't be Pope. And he says, Oh yeah, you only said that because you're guilty of simony. And all of a sudden we have this huge standoff between the church and the state. Now, I want to tell you, the Bible warns us about false prophets. There are many, many warnings in Scripture about those who would come into the church and would try to lead it astray. Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. I told you that I've been teaching the last few years at a private Christian school, and I teach high school students. And I, I'm a Bible teacher in that school. And one of the things that I ask my students every year is I say, do you believe there are any false prophets in the church or in the world today? And there will be a few who will say yes, but a lot of them will go, I don't know. And as they talk about it, the class as a whole will generally decide, yeah, yeah, there's probably false prophets. And I say, name one. They can't name a false prophet. They have no idea who a false prophet would be. I mean, theoretically, there's probably one under a rock somewhere. I want you to know these people we're talking about were wolves in the hen house. These people we're talking about were not concerned about Christ and Christianity. They were concerned about solidifying their own power and lining their own pockets and being the most powerful, most wealthy people on earth. That's what they were interested in. And they were corrupt. Peter said, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. You see, these false teachers would bring destructive heresies into the church. We're going to talk about a few of these destructive heresies that they used to control the church here in just a minute. Their concern was this absolute power of the church. They wanted everyone to be under the thumb and under the control of the authorities of the church. Now listen, I believe elders have responsibility and I believe elders have authority. I believe the Bible teaches that plainly. And I believe elders have a responsibility, for instance, to allow me to preach or not preach here in this congregation. Okay? I believe if I said something and taught something here tonight that was sinful and wrong, we have elders here who would stand up and correct that 
and would let me know that I wasn't welcome tomorrow night to keep teaching the false doctrine that I'm teaching. I believe the Bible teaches that. But the Bible does not teach that the elders here can tell me what car to drive, that the elders here can tell me what stores I can shop in, that the elders here can tell me what to name my children, or that the elders here can tell me how much dollar amount money I need to give to the church. They don't have absolute authority. They have authority in a realm that God has designated to them. But they don't have absolute authority. These people were looking for absolute authority. So let me ask you, how do you get absolute authority? How do you get people to agree to lay down in front of you and let you step on them? Well, they did that through some false teaching. One of the teachings that they taught a lot during this period of time was the fierceness of deity. Now, in America, we don't get a lot of that. We get the opposite, okay? We get God as a senile old grandpa up in heaven that just wants to give candy and toys to everyone and make everybody happy all the time. But they got the opposite. They got the fierceness of God. And to be fair, there's a lot in the Bible about God's fierceness. Our God is a consuming fire, right? You don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible is very plain. You know, in the Old Testament, you can read some stories where he opened the ground up and the ground swallowed people that didn't do what he told them to do, right? He struck a lot of people dead. You remember Uzzah? There's a lot of stories like that. There's some truth to the fierceness of God. But that's all they taught. They taught you need to be afraid of God. They taught God as a cosmic sheriff following you around, waiting for you to mess up so he can get you, so he can send you to hell. Because God is an angry God, and He's a fierce God. And a part of that is they developed these doctrines of relics and icons and praying to saints and Mother Mary. And the idea was this, listen, you better be afraid of God. You can't talk to Him. What you do is you pray to dead Christians who they can go talk to Him for you. And these special saints that are dead Christians, these ones that are really, really holy and really, really righteous and really have a lot of clout with God. And who has more clout with God than the mother of Jesus? So if you want to have some influence with God, don't you dare try to go to Jesus or the Father. They're scary. But you can go to Mary. You can pray to her. Mary can help you with that. You see, their idea of the fierceness of God was like God was some boogeyman. And I want you to know that's just not true. You know, Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, there is a truth that God is fierce at times but there's also the balancing truth of God's love God loves you God doesn't want you to burn in hell God doesn't want to punish you he doesn't want to get you he wants to forgive you we read this we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need we have a savior who knows what it's like to struggle with sin do you struggle with sin do you ever struggle doing things you know aren't right god loves you 
Jesus understands what it's like to struggle with sin. Now, some people don't struggle. They just surrender to sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about fighting against sin, struggling against it. God understands that. He doesn't want to destroy you for your sin. He wants to forgive you and save you from your sin. He wants you to be different. This is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of Him. You know what this says? This says you can pray to God. You can talk to God. And He hears you. You don't have to talk to Mary. You don't have to talk to St. Christopher. You can talk to God. And look at this one. Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. You know what that means? That means God is no more likely to listen to Mary than He is to you. He's just as much has an open ear to you and your needs and your problems and your cries as He does to the mother of His Son, Jesus. Because God is not a respecter of persons. Another thing that they taught was this clergy system. We've talked about the arisal of the clergy system. And the clergy system, it was actually like this. There's God up in heaven and there's you down below. And there's this great gulf, this great gap between you and God. What is there that can bridge that gap? Well, you and I know it's Jesus Christ, right? We understand that. You know what they taught people it was? They taught people it was the priest. You see, the priest, the clergy, stands between you and God. God is fierce. You cannot come to God on your own. He'll destroy you. But we've got a holy man in our presence. We've got a holy man who has been ordained by the authority of the church who can go to God for you. Now, you know, when this happens, when you see the priest as the one who stands between you and God, it's called sacerdotalism. When you see that, guess what? Everybody's nice to the priest, <laughs> right? Because he stands between you and God. You can't approach God. You approach the priest, and the priest approaches God for you. Now, you know, this seems really foreign to us. Unless you were born and raised Catholic, it seems foreign to you. Because we understand that we can approach God personally. But you know, with this sacerdotalism, there were several pieces to this that made it believable to folks. Number one, they forbid the Bible. If you go into old Catholic churches over in, in Europe, a lot of times there will be a great big Bible and it will be chained to the pulpit. They didn't want people to have it. Not only that... But it was written in Latin. So even if you could get a copy of it, you couldn't read it. They made it against the law for normal people to own a copy of the Bible. Now, I asked you the other night if you had a Bible. Does everybody here have a Bible? If you don't, you can grab your phone and go to Version, And in about 30 seconds, you can have a thousand translations of the Bible on your phone. Can you imagine if you couldn't get one? If it was against the law for you to own one? If they put you in prison for having the book of Matthew? Can you imagine that? 
That's what it was like. Another thing involved in this was the sacraments. Now, uh, the idea behind a sacrament is this is the way you get the grace of God, okay? So these are the sacraments. There's seven of them here, and we don't have time to go through them, but baptism is the way you receive the grace of God to salvation. Eucharist, that's communion. That's the way we receive the grace of God through the further forgiveness of our sins. The thing about every one of these things is that the priest had to do it. You couldn't do it for yourself. No one else could do it for you. Only the priest could. So if the priest refused to baptize you, guess what? You don't get forgiven of your sins. So all of a sudden... From this, do we let them back in if they've denied Christ or not? We'll let the bishop decide. All of a sudden, I say all of a sudden, a thousand years later, you know what you've got is you've got people who can stand here and tell you, I'll decide whether you go to heaven or not. And it was terrible. Another thing they had was transubstantiation. That's the belief that once the priest blesses the bread and the fruit of the vine, it literally turns into flesh and blood okay now can you do that can you turn bread into flesh can you turn fruit of the vine grape juice into blood no normal people can't do that but the priest had this mystical power this mystical power that came from the authority of the church that allowed them to do this and so if they didn't provide it to you you had no access to that Jesus said there's one mediator, one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all. There's only one that stands between you and God, and that's Jesus Christ. It's not another man. It's not your elders. It's not an evangelist. It's not a priest. It's only Jesus Christ. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Look at this one. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. This is about communion. What did Paul say it was? He said it was bread. Didn't say it was flesh. He said it was bread. It's bread that to Christians stands in the place of the body of Jesus. So when I take that bread, as far as I'm concerned, I'm taking the body of Christ. But it's not flesh. I'm not a cannibal. It's bread and grape juice. And it always stays bread and grape juice. Another thing was the infallibility of the Pope. It's when the Pope spoke ex cathedra. And he was the only authority in the world and what they did is they had the inquisition you know what the inquisition was it's when they went looking for people who didn't do what the pope said to do they went looking for people who disagreed with the pope and if you disagreed with the pope guess what the next piece of it was execution of the heretics you were deemed a heretic and they would burn you at the stake now listen, if I got up here and I preached something that was wrong and the elders called me down, they said, they said Michael, we are not going to allow you to preach that here. And I said, well, okay, but I, it's still the truth and I'm still going to preach it. And they'd say, well, you're not welcome back here anymore to preach here anymore. But they wouldn't drag me out in the parking lot and burn me to death. They might warn all y'all, don't listen to Michael, but they wouldn't kill me. That's what they did. They killed people who disagreed with the Pope. Now, does that sound like a good place for, to be? No, it sounds like a terrible, terrible place to be. 
And so you had this desire for this. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul said, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. That's where truth comes from. It doesn't come from the Pope. And finally, the last one I want to mention is the doctrine of purgatory. You all know what purgatory is? It's kind of this in-between place between heaven and hell. And the idea is this. You're not good enough to go to heaven when you die. You're just not good enough. You look at your pile of good works and your pile of bad works, and you're going to have more bad works than you have good works. So when you die, Jesus paid so that you could go to heaven, but you still got to pay for your sin, right? You still got, I mean, it's not fair for you to just get away with it. You still got to pay for your sin. So you got to go to hell or go to purgatory, rather, for a period of time to be persecuted and to be punished for the sin that you committed. And there are things involved in this. It's indulgences, penance, and supererogation. Supererogation was the idea that saints who died had more good works than bad works. So all of those good works that they didn't need go in a bank in heaven and you can have access to that by doing penance and penance is when you do things the priest tells you to do after you've committed a sin so the idea is you go and you confess you go to confession they call it and you go and you tell the priest what you did and the priest says okay if you want to be forgiven and he's determining whether or not you're forgiven you want to be forgiven, you need to give $1,000 to the church and go rake leaves for two hours on Saturday at the church building and say six Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. And you do that, you'll be forgiven. But you know, there's going to be some sins you don't confess. There's going to be some you didn't realize you committed. There's going to be some you forget. There may be some you're too ashamed of and you just never do confess. What happens to those? Well, when you die, you have to pay for those sins by going to purgatory. That's where indulgences come in. And indulgences, the idea was that you could go to the priest and you could get him to apply because he's got a bank card at the heavenly ATM for supererogation and he can get some of those good works from those, those people who were the saints and he can get some of those and apply them to you so you don't have to stay in purgatory so long. And you know what the price of that was? Right there. Price of that money. You could buy indulgences. You could pay for the right to commit sin. And it started out paying for sin you'd already committed, but it got to the point where people were able to prepay for sin. Can you believe that? It was like going to a concession stand and going, okay, I'll uh, take adultery and uh, I'll take three lies. And, and you could pay for what you were going to commit in the future. And it was a terrible, terrible thing. The greatest salesman of, of indulgences was this guy named John Tetzel. And he was well known for being able to sell these indulgences, and he made a tremendous amount of money for the crown. This is a quote from one of his sermons. He said, Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, Have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we're in severe punishment and pain. From this you could redeem us with a small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. 
Open your ears as the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us? Though it only takes a little, you let us lie in flames so that we only slowly come to the promised glory. The idea was this. Not only could you pay for your own sins, but you could pay for other people's sins. Just get that checkbook out. Do you love your mom and daddy? If you knew they were writhing in the flames of hell and all you had to do is give $1,000 to the priest and they'd get out, wouldn't you give $1,000 to the priest if you had it? I would if I believed that. They made a lot of money. This guy was despicable. You know, one of my favorite stories about him is he preached this one place and there was this wealthy man who came up to him at the end and he said I want to buy an indulgence for a future sin and he said okay well that'll cost you so much and the guy paid him right then and there and he signed the papers and stamped it you know where he had forgiveness of this future sin and then when John Tetzel was leaving that community he got outside of town and somebody jumped him out of the bushes and they beat the thunder out of the guy and stole every penny he had made and took it and it was that nobleman who'd done it and as he was riding away he yelled back at him oh by the way this is the sin I bought an indulgence for that's corrupt it's just sickeningly corrupt and it's actually this is what pushed that angry German monk that we're going to talk about next time, Martin Luther over the edge, is this kind of corruption. So what you had here, we know the scriptures. Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You can't purchase the gift of God with money. The wages of sin is death. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. You can't pay your way out of purgatory. It's the blood of Jesus that pays for sin. For such a high priest was fitting for us who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. And for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So here's what you had. You had all of these things going together to produce this ultimate absolute power of the church. Now, back to these two guys as we close. You know how this ended? How do you think this ended? This standoff between this king and the pope. You think the king brought his armies in and won? You think the pope brought his armies in and won? What do you think happened? Well, i tell you what happened. This standoff, Pope Hildebrand came up with an idea, Pope Gregory, and his idea was this. I am going to do an interdiction against this king and against everyone in his kingdom. Now, what an interdiction is, is this. He sent out an order to all the priests in all of Germany and France. And he said, starting today, you will no longer do any baptisms. You won't do any marriages. You won't do communion. You won't do anything to give the grace of God to these people. Now, you know what that meant? He was telling this king, you don't do what I tell you to do. I will send you and everyone in your kingdom to hell. And that came from the decision 750 years before to let a bishop decide who got forgiveness. What do you think this king did? You know what this king did? 
he went and he stood in the snow outside the palace of this man right here for three days. And when he finally got in, he fell down and he worshipped this guy and he did what this guy told him because this guy had ultimate power. The power of superstition. People believed that a man could send them to hell. You might say, well, I wouldn't wouldn't be afraid of that. You wouldn't? You can't read. What do you know of what the Bible says? The only guy you know that can read is the priest. You just have to listen to what he says. You have no idea. Besides, God is fierce. You better be afraid of God. Somebody says, well, I'd just go in and take communion. No, you wouldn't. There's an iron railing between you and there's guards and the priest stands here and communion's behind him. You want communion, you come in front of him and you get on your knees and you open your mouth and he places it on your little tongue because you can't even touch it. And if he says no, you just go to hell. What would you do? I'm telling you, it was dark. It was spiritually terrible during this period of time. It was a time when this power, this absolute power of the church grew. Now, the truth is, the Bible says no one can separate us from God, neither life nor death, nor angels or principalities or powers or things present, things to come. Any height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you know that because you can read the Bible. These people couldn't. These people didn't know. They had no hope. And so there's pictures of that castle that he was in front of. You can go visit that castle today. And so what the Pope did is he expanded the absolute power of the church until it absolutely dominated and controlled everyone in the world, in the known world at that time. I want you to know it was a terrible time. As we close, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. I want you tonight when you pray, when you go to bed tonight, I want you to thank God that you don't live under this. I want you to thank God there's not a man who can tell you you're going to hell or heaven. I want you to thank God that it's only Jesus Christ. Because this was a horrible, horrible time to be alive for a Christian. It was a time that Paul called the falling away. And it was a terrible, terrible time. Now, this is so terrible that it's going to push an angry German monk to the breaking point. And things are going to change, and we're starting to get much closer to the world you and I know when we look around this town. How many churches are there here? 500? Maybe not that many. There are 500 in Dallas for sure. Lots of churches. You're going to see how all that happens tomorrow. I appreciate your attention. And I want to tell you this, this Jesus You don't have to go through a pope. You don't have to go through a priest. You come to Jesus. You have a high priest that loves you. And it's Jesus. He understands. And you can be different. And you can be changed. And you can be right with God. What you do is you confess Jesus. You believe He's God's Son. You make that commitment that you're going to live for Him. That's called repentance. And you're going to do what He tells you to do, not what some man tells you to do. And you show that by being baptized into Jesus Christ. And at that point, you're showing that you accept the death of Jesus as payment for your sin. 
If you've not done that, you can do that today. And you can be right with God. And you can lay your head on your pillow tonight and close your eyes and know that you know that you know that if you die tonight, you'll be in heaven with the Savior. You can be right with God. If you're not right with Him tonight, please come to the front and let us help you while we stand and sing.